Hello, Chris here with another installment of the Make It Podcast. And before we get to today's guest, I want to encourage everyone to go to our website at www.bonsai.film and click on the resources link. There you'll be able to join our creative community and be given access to an ever-growing slew of film-related resources and tools at your disposal, of course, at zero cost to your wallet. And you might be asking yourself, well, Chris, how is it always ever-growing? Well, that's because we take recommendations from the creative community and we do a lot of research ourselves. So, If you have something that you think is a great resource for the community and you don't see it in our resource library, let us know and uh, we will add it. So right now, a good way to let us know is by emailing us at contact at bonsai.film or you can uh, DM us or add us on Twitter or Instagram at underscore bonsai creative. So now... On to today's podcast guest. On this episode, we have a conversation with actor and writer and director Stephanie Black. Stephanie is originally from Allentown, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, Playwrights Horizon Theater School, and an alumna of the Williamstown Theater Festival and American Conservatory Theater. She is a founding member and co-artistic director of the Ovation Award-winning I Am A Theater Company. As an actor, Stephanie has starred on such shows as Scandal, House of Lies, How I Met Your Mother, This Is Us, The Goodwin Games, Grey's Anatomy, Bones, ER, Private Practice, and many others. Stephanie is an acting teacher and coach and is on the faculty at the John Rosenfeld Studios in Hollywood, California. So, without further ado, I give you the multi-talented, down-to-earth, dream-chasing, high-heel-wearing actor, writer, and director, Stephanie Black. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Stephanie Black. I'm an actor, writer, director. Uh, you may know me from recurring on such shows as Scandal and How I Met Your Mother, uh, and also This Is Us on NBC. Currently, I'm working on uh, developing and directing my second feature film and uh, working on a show called Station 19 on ABC. That's awesome. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us on the podcast. You are one of the hardest working actresses and actors that um, writers that I, that I know personally, I, as a matter of fact, you just got out of a, a writing session. Is that right? <laughs> I, I did. Well, I don't know if it's so much brainstorming as 
or it wasn't really writing. It was more like brainstorming. We'll say that. Yeah. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that because so many of our listeners do this every day and, and some of them have, you know, everyone has varying levels of experience with this. So how would you describe a real writing session, like full on writing session versus a brainstorming session? Um, well, I think basically it starts at the beginning of the process. Um, and I tend to get a lot of ideas and I start a lot of projects and then I have to sort of decipher what I actually want to put my energy towards. Um, so right now at the project I'm, I was just working on today, um, we're really in the developing phase. So this is a TV project where, um, I'm working with another creator and we are developing, uh, the storyline, but really we start with what is the show about and who are these people and what's the world. And so today we were, you know, throwing out characters and digging into character descriptions and doing some broad strokes on story and synopsis a little bit, and then thinking about like what the arc of the character for the life of the show would be. And so we kind of start like big picture and then move into smaller specifics, um, because the first step here is to create a story Bible or show Bible. And then from that, we would create an outline and then we'd create a pilot script. Yeah, there's a lot to to sort of dig into there. So I'll start at the top. You, you mentioned um, sort of breaking down character art. Are you using, is your process a whiteboarding process? Is your process a note card or index card process? Is it software? Um, no, right now it's not. So this is right now where we're at is purely just in opening up like a word doc and just kind of free form throwing out bullet points, essentially. Like we haven't even named characters yet. We haven't gotten to the specifics of sort of defining the titles or anything like that. So mm -hmm. we're just kind of going in a free form list sort of organization, I guess, um, where we are kind of throwing out physical attributes and then emotional characteristics and then backstory and little specific details here and there to flesh out these characters. And then eventually we'll put it together in a PDF form, um, where we will have like a log line about the show, about the world. Then we'll have in-depth character descriptions. Then we'll do a full synopsis. Um, and then we'll do a overview of season one and then an overview of the series. Got it. And so that's the second thing I wanted to dig into because I'm not sure all writers know this. I'm sure quite a few do. But when you're writing for television, you kind of have to know how the series ends even as you're writing the pilot. Is that what you said? It's true? I don't know if you have to know where the series ends. I think you have to know what the arc is you're exploring. So if you're exploring a character who's looking to find meaning in their lives or looking to find out who they are, you want to know where you're starting with what are the big questions and you want to, you kind of want to have an idea of what you're hoping that they're going to find. But if a show goes long enough, you know, things twist and turn and like the initial intent can completely change based on what, uh, the writers at the time of that season decide is important. And that's influenced a lot by what's going on in the world, what's going on in the lives of the writers in the room. I mean, it's usually, I think people create sort of an amalgamation of, the world and their world for how mm -hmm. stories kind of, kind of go. Yeah. So you leave, you always leave room for zeitgeist to, to play a role in, in what gets written in the writer's room. I think so. I think certain shows, 
you know, rely heavily on that. And then other shows try to not get caught up in it. Cause it is hard to do rip from the headlines or up to the minute accurate of things. And like I write comedy. So my stuff is really character based and really about what's going on in the lives of that character and in the context of the world we live in now, but, um, not so much having to be necessarily PC or likable or hundred percent accurate to something that exists in the world. You know, there's a lot more liberties I think you can take with comedy because it's comes from a specific point of view that's slanted towards something left of center, I think. Mm. Yeah. And I, I love reading a, a good comedy script. Uh, it's, it's probably one of my favorite things um, to read. I was spoiled early by reading The, the Princess Bride, um, <laughs> one of the first screenplays I ever read. You, you mentioned uh, Story Bible. Break that down for our listeners. Like what, what is that? Well, a story Bible or a show Bible is usually the document that writers come up with when they're um, pitching a show or once they've already put a show into development. And it sort of breaks down in as much specificity as they want to have um, episode by episode, season by season, um, like certain arcs for each character, certain storylines, new characters they want to introduce. Um, right, a lot of writers do it differently. Some people include snippets of scenes, of di- pieces of dialogue. Some just get really into detail with what the visual will look like. It really depends on the kind of writer you are. Um, but what I'm working on right now is more of a series overview so it's more of like a three to four page document that's just going to go more broad strokes in some of these things, but have more specific character breakdowns. So you get a, a shorter, like a succinct version of what this show could be. Right. So the story Bible is, is something a little bit more in depth than the overview you're working on. And the story Bible is kind of like a, a television version, maybe without the financials, uh, you know, similar to a prospectus in a feature film. Where um, it, may, it little, might include the lookbook, it might include some different. Well, it doesn't things. include a look. It doesn't include a lookbook. It's usually not visual. It's more. Uh, gotcha. About, it's it's more really about store like the show. It's really like your go to, not necessarily an outline, but the breakdown of everything that you need for the like to write the show. Got it. Got it. That's great. So I'm going to go down a quick list of things you've worked on recently here, and. Okay. Um, it's really quite a list. Uh, this is us. <laughs> I feel like scared. <laughs> Scandal. So out of order. Okay. <laughs> House of Lies, Bones, Grey's Anatomy, How I Met Your Mother, <laughs> ER, and of course you're you're in our wonderful feature film Wild Man as well, where you co-directed, co-wrote, and starred in it as well. Um, you've had a lot of experiences uh, over um, a large period of time. I think your first performance was in 2002. So I have a couple of, I have a couple of, uh, or credited performance questions that, that come from that. So one, as you were coming up, you're, cause you're not from uh, where we would traditionally say a lot of um, performance talent or influence comes from you're from Allentown, Pennsylvania. And um, well, I don't we, know if that's true. Is that not I'm from tr- like, I don't think so because I'm from basically an hour and a half outside New York City and then right. like 45 minutes north of Philly. So mm. I think um, Allentown's actually like, although I had a lot of working actors that I was friends with growing up, there was like a very heavy, um, I think, uh, kid friendly kind of environment there. Yeah, let me actually let me clarify and contextualize. So from the from the lay listener, 
they may not see Allentown, Pennsylvania as a place where they're growing creatives, right? Uh, because I I think, I think what you said is absolutely true because there are at least three people on this, uh, that we've interviewed so far that are from Pennsylvania. Uh, interestingly enough. So it, it, there's actually some commonality there. So I think what you're saying is spot on. Um, Mm -hmm. but I am curious growing up there, you know, I guess you, you're mentioning that a little bit that New York was a big influence on you being so close. What, what was that moment in your life where you knew you wanted to live a creative life? Um, honestly, there was never like that defining moment. A lot of people talk about the moment they made the choice, the decision. And for me, it was really just the obvious path I was going to take from a very young age. When I was three or four, I experienced my sister performing on stage for the first time and I immediately was drawn to it. And so I was put in dance classes and so I was performing. And then when I was old enough to audition for, um, the community theater that's in Allentown, that's been around for a very long time and very prominent, I started getting on stage right away. And then when I was, um, 11 years old, my parents sent me to this amazing performing arts camp called French Woods Festival, of the performing arts. And that was sort of the beginning of the end. Um, <laughs> where the beginning of the I, beginning. Oh, the beginning of the beginning. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I went to that camp from age 11 to 18. Um, wow. And being there and being around other kids like me doing what I wanted to do, kids who were already on Broadway, in the movies, on TV. Um, it was just very um, clear that this was an actual path you could take. And it, I never wavered once from the choice. Um, I kind of learned about NYU being at that camp. I had heard about kids who had got grown up and had gone to NYU. And so I was like, NYU is where I'm going to go to college. And that's where I ended up going to college and studying theater and eventually like starting my career and moving from New York to LA. And, um, it, it, it was all just the plan. There was never another plan. There was never a moment of like hesitation or decision. It was just sort of who I was from birth, <laughs> I guess. That's, that's incredible. And NYU is a, it's a great school, um, as well for that. I'm, I'm curious in your time. So I guess two questions come from that. Uh, you spent about seven or eight years in that camp. Is there, is there a favorite performance, uh, that you can think of that, that you'd like to share with us? Um, sure. Well, I would say the most important performance was my very first one because I showed up at that camp thinking that I was going to be Annie and I was going to be the star. And Mm. I was very quickly taught that some of these kids were just bananas talented and, I could like barely sing over the piano when I auditioned. And so I got put in the chorus of Annie, but to me, I was like, that's not good enough. And so I went to the director the first day of rehearsal and I said, is anyone playing the dog Sandy? And he said, no. And I said, I would like to play Sandy. And he was like, are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm very sure. And then I was a principal in the show and I had my own bow. I had my own moment. I got to hang out with the leads and I learned at a very young age how to be a strategic businesswoman when it came to like living in the arts. <laughs> so I think that was like my most important performance, but my favorite. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was so funny. And uh, yeah, I had my mom send me like a personalized dog collar and leash. I mean, it was, it became like way bigger of a deal than it should have been, but, but it was fun. I came back the next summer and I got a bigger part. So people remembered, uh, wow. but I think my favorite my favorite performance, um, 
was doing uh, my, it was probably my very last performance at Frenchwoods, which was um, playing Marta and company. Um, and funny enough, I was probably like the oldest camper at camp at that point. Cause I was 17 and I played like the youngest person in the cast. Mm-hmm. which just it was ridiculous. Cause like there was a 13 year old playing someone who was like 35 <laughs> and I was, and I was playing like a 21 year old, <laughs> um, but it was, it was so much fun and I got to sing an incredible song and I got to act. And I just remember kind of being on that stage for like the last time looking out and like being very aware of like, this was a stepping stone to something much bigger than me. And it, uh, it was really like an emotional, like incredible moment that, um, and I was surrounded by some of my closest friends who are all still, you know, performing. And, um, it was just like a really awesome show to be a part of. Sounds like it. I, I would have, um, I would have loved that. Um, I, I think there's a lesson in there for, for parents of, of children who are creative or showing that creative itch to, to almost put them in a, the closest thing you can find to an incubator where they can be around other people who can motivate them and teach them and they can grow. And I think that's with anything. So athletics, I think we're so conditioned. We know how to do it with sports. I don't know if everybody knows how to do it in the world of creativity and performance. Um, You mentioned you went to the NYU uh, Tisch School of the Arts. Would you recommend people go to college for, for film and theater? Oh my God. Absolutely. I, I am so grateful for my education. First of all, it's where I met Jackie Phillips, my co-director with wild man and producer of wild man. Um, and Jackie and I met, you know, our first week at college and we'd both transferred in and we're in this amazing studio playwrights horizons theater school where they groomed us to be complete theater artists, which, so they taught us to create and direct and design and act and move and sing and, and everything. And, um, being there together formed like this friendship that we've had for, you know, almost 20 years. And also that led to this like incredible creative partnership. Um, and, it also created some other incredible friendships that I have that led me to start. I am a theater company and we're now in our 11th year. Um, but I think more than anything being in New York city at that point in my life, um, and being allowed the opportunity to focus solely on my training, um, and getting to be in the place where I could go and see it in practice all around me was more than valuable. I, I am so grateful for that time and for what it helped me explore and how it helped me find myself and find like my voice. So I would a hundred percent recommend that school or any sort of BFA program that gives you that kind of concentration. Yeah. So many people that might poo poo on, on going to school um, versus just going right after it. But I think I, I would not take back my college experience. Um, I'm not I saying I could have learned that. what I learned, but, but without it, it just, there's just, it's hard to explain because it's so nuanced. Yeah, I do. I do believe in training. I do believe in learning the tools, um, to help you create the structure. Like, I think that the freedom lies in the structure. So you have to learn to paint within the lines before you can like create your own lines essentially. And I think having whether it's acting training or, you know, going to film school or going to art school or, or whatever it is. I mean, you know, doctors have to go through eight years of school before they can perform surgery. Like why should actors not have to learn, have a little bit of tools behind them as well? I mean, I think that 
when you're trying to jump into something as nebulous as like a human existence, a little framework is really, um, important and like learn for me, learning how to use my voice, learning how to use my body, learning how to play around with accents and dialects and things. Um, so that I had all this at my disposal when I was launched into the real world, which can be really daunting as a young actor. I, I think having that is really invaluable. It also helps you find a container for all the emotions you have as a young person and knowing how to use them because it can be overwhelming. Yeah, that's a, that's a really valuable point uh, as well. I know in, in the realm of like finding a container for your emotions, uh, for me, that was uh, how college helped me form a personal philosophy, something that was defensible in, in most all scenarios and that you can lean on when you get in these real world scenarios with other human beings. And, and, and um, you need to have some sort of guiding principle. Uh, college is really helpful for that. So uh, I, I agree with you. I, I mentioned earlier, I mean, combined, you have 55 or so credits. It's amazing. What oh, yeah. advice have you picked up along the way that has really stuck with you throughout your career and who did it come from? Um, well, I, there's a piece of advice that was really helpful for me in sort of the navigating the personal relationships to this business, um, mm -hmm. from, it was actually passed down to a friend of mine, um, from, from someone she knew and she sort of passed it on to my group of friends. Um, she was part of a, like a very close knit group of women and, um, and they all sort of came out of drama school together and came out of growing up doing theater in Chicago. And she said, told my friend, she said, you're never all going to be in the same, like right now where you all are starting out, you're never going to be in this place ever again. You're never going to all be at the same place. Life is going to take you all in many different directions. You're going to all experience different career highs and lows, and they're not going to be in sync with each other. So as long as you know that and accept that and love each other and support each other, you guys will be okay. And that was such an important, that was such important advice because more than anything, I've learned how important these close relationships and friend and friendships are because this business is so chock full of negativity and comparison mm -hmm. and ambition and, um, just so many things that can sort of topple you. And to have that support system and your group of friends who are, you share that dream of an artistic dream together, it kind of, it, it connects you in a way that you can't connect with other people. So knowing that there are other people close to you who are trying to do the same thing you're trying to do and understand you in that way is so important. But if you let the, the jealousy and the comparison take you down, like you're going to lose those friendships. And I think those friendships are what make someone like me able to like be a lifer in this business and like keep pushing no matter how old I am or where I'm at. Yeah, that's so great. I love the language topple you. And, um, we recently, uh, not too long ago, just lost our, the great Brittany Belland, um, who had moved out to LA. And I think that was a big part of her, her darkness that, that she was trying to fight, um, you know, she took her own life and, and, um, and she, she was really caught up in, does LA want me, you know, can I, can I yeah. stack up? Am I talented enough? So, uh, everyone listening, I mean, definitely listen to what Stephanie is saying here and, um, and don't let those things comparison and jealousy and, and, 
you know, ambition uh, to the negative side of ambition, you know, topple you. Um, you, I'm curious. Um, you seem to just, you seem to, to, to have your eye on an intention. You have your eye on a gig, you go and get it. Are there audition tricks that you can share that, that with the audience that, that might increase their chances of getting the gig? Um, I think the only audition trick I know is that your job is just to go in there and book the room, not the job. Like your job is to go in there and make a fan. But first and foremost, really your job is to tell the story. So there's not really any tricks. I don't think there's anything because it's so subjective. You know, you could go in there being absolutely perfect, knowing that your take is going to be the best they're going to see and believe in yourself 120%. But if that cast director is having a bad day or if the producer's girlfriend's sister's brother, you know, is owed a favor and they're going to get that part, there's nothing you can do. So Mm. I think the best advice I can give is be prepared. Know, like do your homework, know what you're auditioning for, read the script. I can't tell you how many people don't read the complete script of what they're auditioning for. They just look at their lines and go in and your job is to be a story is to be a storyteller. You got to go in there knowing the story you're telling. So go in there, be prepared, have done your work, know those lines backwards and forwards, be able to really live in that scene and you are going to make people lean forward and, and take notice. Um, I heard an interview once, I think it was with Jim Parsons say, who's on big bang theory. He said he treats, he used to treat every audition. Like it was a one night only performance starring him. Mm. And I heard that and I was like, Oh, that's really cool. I love, I, I love that idea. And, um, I tried to, to embody that. And I, and I, I honestly, I do think it made me enjoy auditioning more. Um, some people you know, incredible. I know incredible actors who are terrible at auditioning because they just becomes a mental game and they get in their head and they start, they're, they're living outside themselves and they just can't be present in the moment. And I've come to a place now, um, where I, I get an audition and I get excited and I love working on it. And I rope other people in to work with me on it. And, um, I really look forward to doing it and I treat it like I, it's the, like I've got the job, but that, and because that's kind of all you can do because, you know, I don't get every job. I, you know, don't, I probably in one in five auditions, I maybe get one or I don't get any. And, um, that's just the reality of, of the business. But, um, really loving auditioning is like the best trick I could say. Yeah. I, I, it's funny how some of these anxieties and stressors that we put in ourselves, they, they really, um, exist in all industries. I, I had a, a great friend. He's still a great friend, actually. Um, he's got three degrees, summa cum laude, top 20 university. Uh, he's a, I think a 98.6 degree Mensa. Whoa. Uh, and he can't interview or, or he couldn't. So he, he had trouble. I think he's overcome that now, but, um, I think he's got a, a master's from IE, which is the best business school in the world. And, but early on, he would just get the Kung Pao chicken sweats whenever he had to go, <laughs> whenever he had to go interview and he wouldn't get the job because, you know, the, the sort of nonverbals that sweating communicates when the question shouldn't be making you sweat. Um, yeah. you know, 
some of those nervous tics that, that, that get you, even though you're well-qualified, perhaps overqualified for the job. I mean, there are little mind tricks you can do. Like sometimes if I get really nervous, cause I still get nervous sometimes for auditions. I have this one trick that a friend of mine taught me where I just like look around the room where I'm sitting and I call things out. I'll be like, that's a table. That's a chair. This is my hand. My shirt's blue. Um, and it kind of forces you to be immediately present and it actually lowers your heart rate. It's mm. like a weird physiological trick. I like um, it. So, I mean, I know some people who take beta blockers just cause they're like, I got to get my heart to stop <laughs> racing. That's incredible. And I know a lot of people actually do that. Uh, so whatever, you know, whatever gets you there. Um, but you know, for me, regardless of what I'm feeling, once I get into the room and I just like lock in and connect, I'm usually good to go. And I've left rooms where I've been like, there is no way I'm not going to get that part. Like there's just no way. And I don't even get a call back. And I've now learned that I do not judge my work and my ability based on that. Mm-hmm. It's just like, that's the part that is so out of our hands. That's the most frustrating part. And I have to like say this out loud to remind myself, even as I say it, but, um, it is something like to be reminded of all the time. Cause it's, it's just, it's a numbers game. It's really hard, but at the end of the day, you have to love what you do and you have to keep doing it and finding new ways of doing it. And that's, you know, that's why I started writing and, and directing. Yeah. And when I started in music, um, uh, well, I, I got my start in music and for years I told people who were aspiring to be in music and were nervous around auditions and things like that. I, I told them never forget, you know, everything or, or I should say Pareto's law applies to everything. So the 80, 20 rule. So no matter what industry you're in, no matter what you're doing, you shouldn't be too nervous. If you have a lot of skill, a lot of talent, you're probably in that 20%. And that's going to help you out a lot. Um, you know, if a hundred people show up for a gig, 80% of them don't, aren't going to be talented enough. They're going to be immediate, def- like immediate no's, right? Yeah. They're either not yeah. going to look the part, be the part, or be able to act the part. Now you just have to compete with that 20%. And that's where that one in five comes in. So the math actually works out pretty nice there. Yeah. Um, so so it, it really does make sense. Um, at this point, because of the way distribution works, obviously, and because you've booked gigs on such popular shows, people have seen your performances all around the world at this point. I'm curious to know which set experience, because you've worked with so many great people, which set experience taught you the most where you could kind of see or feel, oh, wait a second, I just leveled up a bit in my talent or in my understanding? Um, well, I will say working on scandals when I felt like I finally got into a place where I was like, this is uh, like, I know what I'm doing and I'm comfortable on the set and I am just as qualified to be there as anyone else. And it felt like home finally. Um, mm-hmm. and I think a large part of that was because my best friend is one of the leads on the show. And so we got to work together and I knew a lot of the cast already. Um, so it was a very warm environment to go into, but I think it was a, because of that, I think it put me in a place of feeling like an equal. And so I was able to be the actor that I am and ask questions and want to try stuff and, you know, have an idea you know, and be creative in a way that I don't think I had been before. Um, and a lot of that was because it was a set that that cast set a tone of being very open and communicative. Everybody knew everybody's name. Everybody was a family. Um, it made the like, uh, 
the, the whole like stigma of like television, it, it wasn't this glamorous thing anymore. It just became like a job, but like a great place that I wanted to be. So that was a really um, informative experience. Um, I think then working on this is us was sort of the next step of that, where, um, I had such amazing material to dig into as an actor and such a great scene partner that, um, I was able to almost pretend that those cameras weren't even there and, you know, did the kind of work that I probably do more often on stage or when I'm doing a reading with my theater company where I'm so much more, uh, like present, but I'm, I'm going much deeper. And I think that when I watch it, it's like the first time in a while that I, I watch my work and I'm like, Oh yeah. And I like stop seeing myself, which mm-hmm. that's like rare when you're an actor, you're always very aware it's you. But, um, I, I felt like I was very much in command of what I wanted to do on that set and was given the trust by like the director and the writers and the producers to, to really explore and was treated with respect from, for that. Yeah. And when you're not acting, you, you really do an amazing job of, of sharing your talent, sharing your knowledge and just doubling down on those people who want to try to emulate what you do. Um, you are the co uh, artistic director for uh, I Am a Theater Company. You started uh, the Young Storytellers Foundation. Um, well, I didn't start. Well, no, the, I did not start the Young Storytellers. Or I'm did just, you? Are you just a part of? It. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. No, I've I've been a volunteer with them um, and a head mentor with them for about ten years. But I, uh, I did not start me. it. The, no, the organization was started much longer, bef- much much before me. <laughs> so you're a mentor there. My, my apologies for that. Yeah. Um, I. I misspoke. It's an incredible organization. I'm very proud to be part of, but yeah, I didn't start it. <laughs> again, again, audio veritas here. So, um, so, so, um, with that background, I mean, um, you're, you're an incredible teacher. You, you've mentioned theater a few times. Is that where you wanted to start? Did you just, did you want to be a theater performer? Oh yeah. I mean, I had no intention of moving to LA. LA was just that place that was like super sunny where, I had some camp friends that lived there and like knew famous people. And I was like, I'm good. I don't really want to go there. I just wanted to be on Broadway. That was all I ever thought about. Um, but you know, your friends one by one start moving out West and you're like, do I want to stay here and do this hustle alone? And so I came out after sort of my last friend was like, I'm not coming back. (laughs) I came out and took some meetings and, um, at the time I was hitting some walls with acting in New York and the response I was getting in LA was that there was a lot of open doors for me. And so I just kind of made the leap and did it. And within that first year I booked uh, a lead in a movie and a guest star on a TV show without a trace. Um, and then that next summer is when we started IAMA and, you know, we were going 11 years later where, you know, one of top 25 regional theaters in the country to look out for says playbill.com and, gain a lot of national recognition, um, and multiple, you know, award nominations and stuff. So it's something I'm incredibly proud of. Yeah, you should be. And, uh, I, I do want to have a small aside here, uh, because you have this unique experience of being uh, a professional in both New York and in Los Angeles. I'm wondering, um, what, what are the one or two or, or three things that, that make the most difference or, or the, 
or, or create the gap between what it's like to work in LA and, and New York? Uh, what, sorry, ask that again. What's the gap? Yeah, I kind of asked it in an overly complex way. Let me just rephrase that in a very simple way, which is what are the differences in your opinion between trying to book gigs and be a professional and be successful in New York as an actor versus LA? Hmm. Um, you know, it's a hard thing to say because I, it's been so long since I lived in New York. Um, but for me, when I was in New York, um, I felt like the hustle and the struggle and the being a starving artist and creating, you know, art in like downtown spaces and like theaters below a bar, like that was really cool. And you could kind of get lost in that, the hustle of the grit of that for so long. Um, and then when I came out here, the idea of struggling just was less exciting and it made you get more ambitious, but more specific. So, um, I had a much clearer plan of what to, of what to do. Um, and so I, you know, got into acting class right away and I made sure I had the representation sorted out right away. And then I started this theater company. And so I had all these pockets of opportunity that I created sort of around me and my, my group of people I was working with and friends with. And we kind of moved as a group forward and that, that was really helpful. So, and you know, when I got a good paying job, um, you know, at, at the, at the time, like working in like event planning and stuff. So I think that, um, the quality of life was a little bit at the time that I moved, the quality of life in LA was much better than it was in New York. And so, um, it made me kind of slow down, regroup and refocus. Um, and it also opened me up to like the world television and film. So I was able to do all three where I wasn't as in the know. Um, I was so entrenched in the theater world when I was in New York. So yeah, it makes me um, curious. Um, it makes me curious to know who who did you want to emulate? Who who were your heroes? Who were the people you were trying to sort of follow um, in your own career, growing up in this business? Um, whose careers do I want to emulate? Well, I've always thought of. I've always wanted to have the career that Kathy Bates has has had. I mean, she was a person I always looked at, um, and was just like her choices and what she's done. Um, the way people see her and she's, she's just, and having met her and worked with her, like she is so smart and thoughtful and creative and like takes her job very seriously. So I've always really respected that. Um, I mean, if you ask me like, who's my hero, like Barbara Streisand, obviously, because she's done everything. (laughs) She's a, she's a, a writer, a director, a performer, a singer, you know, my, my background growing up was in musical theater. So the, to have that, I mean, that is something I strive for is to be able to sort of do it all. Like she, like she does, she's kind of like my ultimate hero. I even have a, a black and white photo of her in my bathroom. She's like dressed in a Superman t-shirt mm-hmm. and that's like my version of like wonder woman on my wall. That's amazing. Is, yeah. so I, I'm curious, is, is theater still um, a dream that sits there like kind of a splinter in your mind? Oh, my God. Not even a splinter. It's like right there. Like I being mean, on Broadway. Oh, if I, if I, once, I'll say this, once I'm on Broadway, because I will get there, like my life is, I'm good. Everything else is gravy. Like that's still <laughs> the dream, the end all goal for me. Once that happens, everything else is just like, you know, icing on the cake. Yeah, it's 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 awesome to think that way because I think oftentimes um, you 
um, you, you do get in competition. You, you do get lost in your ambition as a creative and you don't take time to take stock in the things you've already achieved and, and maybe what that original goal was. And, and, um, you know, especially if you don't get a pot of gold with it. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's, it is so important to reflect on, on just the little impacts you're having, going back to what you're saying about maintaining your friends and, and being there for them and, and how important it is to just your future. So uh, I love that. And I, I, I know you're going to get to Broadway as well. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> um, Thank you. Yeah, completely supported. I know you mentioned Kathy Bates there. You guys have a show on Netflix called Disjoined. Is that correct? Um, it was. It, it, it did one season on Netflix, Disjointed. Um, disjointed. Sorry. Disjointed. Yeah. It only did one season, but I got, I was, um, cast as young Kathy. Basically her character's name was Ruth. So I was young Ruth and I played her when she was like 25 and she was an activist and like a pro marijuana activist fighting Mm -hmm. for her right to smoke pot. Um, and it was, it was awesome because, um, her character basically hallucinates her younger version, her younger mm-hmm. self, me. So right. my scene was with her and we got to act together. And that was just like probably to date, like one of the greatest acting experiences, if not the I've had so far, just like having that back and forth with her and holding my own. And it was very cool. Yeah. I bet it would be amazing to be on set with her. That That's to me, that's right up there with working with, you know, De Niro or, Daniel oh, yeah. Lewis or Meryl Streep or something like that. She was amazing. I'm, I'm sad the show didn't continue. Yeah, that was awesome. I am too. I am too. Um, if you had one month to teach someone how to be a competent actor, so good enough to get a part, let's say they have an audition, it's coming up in a month, they have to get it, life or death kind of thing for them, what would be the first three things you would teach them if they were brand new to the, to the craft? Uh, brand new to the craft, one month to prepare for a role, get an acting class, make sure that you are in a place on a weekly basis where you are practicing your craft with other people. Um, I would say make sure that you're acting every day, whether it's reading scenes out loud with a friend putting yourself on tape in an audition sort of format or um, reading scripts and reading them out loud, like acting every day as much as you can. Um, I think go go out into the world and experience things that make you feel something Mm -hmm. because you can't be an actor if you don't know how to feel and if you don't know how to have access to your emotions. And that just means like, you know, going on like, I guess an artist date or something like go to the movies or go to a park or go to a museum, but you know, find ways to like activate yourself and see what you have to offer. Cause I don't know. I feel like for me, what I've learned over the years and when I teach and coach acting, I really grabbed onto this idea that acting is just about having a point of view in given circumstances. So it's like, who is this character? And they're in this situation and the way that they're going to deal with this situation is based on their point of view, which means how they view and see the world, what their opinion is. So you have to have opinions. So get into arguments with people, have deep discussions, find out what you like, because if you don't know how you feel about something, it's going to be really hard for you to figure out how your character feels about something. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think I confessed to to doing something similar back when I was songwriting, which is I would get in sort of frivolous relationships that I knew weren't going to last. So, so that I just had something to write about. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I had to train myself to to be able that's to write funny. in any circumstance. And um, yeah, you know, the the process I did was I I would go to uh, Fido, which was a coffee shop here in Nashville, uh, Hillsborough Village, and. Um, I, they had these, you know, free newspapers and magazines on a rack, and I would just take a handful of them, bring them to the table, and I would find the top ten best headlines. Um, which, by the way, in journalism is a job by itself. So there's just headline writers. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I would take those headlines, and I would force myself to write different songs with those headlines in different genres. Yeah. And and just practicing that got me really good at the technical part of writing, which is, okay, what, what's our format? Are we going seven, 11, seven on the syllables? Like, how are we, you know, are we doing chorus, no chorus? Are we doing, you know, two verse, two, you know, verse, verse bridge, you know, kind of, kind of format and, and mm-hmm. learning how to form those words because you were living inside of the sort of the confines and the construct of that headline title, which is the title of your song. Um, oh, so yeah, it goes, it goes back to your comment on, on definitely go to school. Training is, 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 is wonderful. Um, and, I, you know, on this podcast and in these conversations, we, we do try to talk a little bit about some of the common mistakes business-wise or creatively that uh, anyone can fall into, newcomers or, or experienced people. I know that our good friend Ted Welch had mentioned that that early in his career he got a gig. It was pain. He thought his life was going to just – just um, like like he'd done what he needed to do, and <laughs> yeah. then and then you know the world just kind of punches you in the face a little bit um, uh, when that gig ends. And so so I'm curious, you you're someone you just mentioned working on Disjointed with Kathy Bates that ended after one season that couldn't have been expected. What should people do in this in this you know as actors um, or writers um, once they book a really great gig? And it's over. Uh, how should they work, or what are the next things they should do? Uh, you know, after they sort of book and complete a big gig. Um, I think you just have to look at towards the next one. I think you have to not look at any one job as the thing that's going to change your life because it's just doesn't really work that way. Even if say you do get that job and all of a sudden expels you into this new place in your career, you're probably gonna have something new in your personal life come up or mm-hmm. something in your family is going to come up. And I think the mistake that most people make and that I've made and, um, is expecting, expecting this to cha- to, to change your life or to expecting one thing to be the answer. And I think you have to look at it. You got to look at the long game. You got to look at, you know, you go in for an audition and you come out. I know a lot of actors who like throw their sides in the trash right when they leave so that they're like, <laughs> they, they let it go, you know, right. like they did their thing. They let it go out of their hands. It's not going to bother them the rest of the day. You know, that's something some people do. Um, another thing is like, we'll be present in that, you know, I think it's a mistake to, you get the job and then you get on set and you, you spend all of your time worrying about what's next instead of enjoying that and making the most out of it while you're there. Mm-hmm. Like I now like to enjoy every moment of it. I like to enjoy, you know, ta- making new connections with people and friends and learning. Um, 
you know, if I'm not, if I'm on, if I'm called a set, but, but I'm like sitting in my trailer for hours and they're not ready for me, I tend to wander over to video village and I sit by the DP or I sit by the first aid or someone. And I start asking questions and I talk or I just watch and I am trying to learn as much as I can. So I can make the most out of each opportunity because sometimes they are far and few in between. Sometimes one thing does lead to another very quickly. Um, I think, uh, feeling the need to like change your life, life drastically when you book a job, you know, like be smart and like learn how to balance your checkbook and save money mm-hmm. and don't be frivolous. You know, I stopped doing that thing where I would book. A, I used to, when I lived in New York, I lived, uh, South of Union square and I would have to go by Union square on my way home all the time. And if I had a great audition, I had this horrible habit where I would walk into the diesel store and I would buy a pair of like $150 pair of jeans as like a treat to myself for a great audition. (laughs) But like, I didn't, I booked maybe one out of like 10 to 20 of those jobs. And yet I'm buying like 20 pairs of jeans, you know, Mm. that was not the smartest thing to do. So don't do that. You know, like save your money, be responsible, learn, learn how to, um, you know, make this life work. I think it can be really hard. And there's some, um, people have expectations that aren't necessarily realistic, but if you build a strong life, that's the foundation of the career, you're going to last a lot longer in it. So, you know, have a good, like have great friends, have an apartment or a house that you love, have a wardrobe that you love, have, um, things around you that make you feel good that aren't dependent on booking that job to make you happy. Because if you walk into the room so and you're like, this is the only thing that's going to make me happy, you're probably not going to get the job because that means you're not actually focused on telling the story. So yeah. I think that's kind of where it starts. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I actually started a role of my own to prevent me from being a hoarder. Uh, and it's just a simple love like rule, which I stole or hijacked from this uh, Japanese world renowned organizer. And I, I'm forgetting her name right now. But um, essentially, I look at anything in my house. And if I don't love it, then I just sell it or give it away. And, oh, that's yeah, that's smart. And it's really that simple. Um I know at a time I loved it, but I don't love it anymore. Okay. It's just sitting here. Cause you have to be honest with yourself. Like, <laughs> like, especially with clothes, clothes can get out of control. Shoes can get out of control. Like you have to be honest. Are you ever going to wear that sweater again? Okay. I'm probably not. Um, <laughs> cause, cause things creep into your head. Like, Oh, wait a second. I spent how much on that sweater. I can't, I can't give that away. I can't sell that, you know, but, but you never wear it. So it just sits there and you begin to, um, worship it <laughs> instead of it worshiping you. So it's a little yeah. bit, it gets a little bit weird. I have one item right now, Steph, that's like that. I went to Montreal for my birthday uh, several years ago and I had the time of my life and I went and bought, <laughs> this is silly. I went and bought a leather sleeveless <laughs> vest with a hood on it um, because it was badass. And, um, I've wore it like eight times in, in leather sleeveless vest. Yeah. Leather sleeveless vest with, a, with a hood on it. Why do you need the hood if you don't have sleeves? That's my question. Cause it rains in Montreal. I don't know. Uh, 
Yeah, no, but your point is so valid that it just sits in my closet, right? Yeah. And every time I get ready to give it away, I'm like, I put it on, I look myself in the mirror and I'm like, ooh, that still looks good. But here's the thing, Steph. I'm not a leather vest guy. That's like not who I am. Like I wear, nope. I wear like buttoned up shirts and suits or I'll wear jeans and a t-shirt, but I, I'm really not a vest guy. I don't have a motorcycle and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not Johnny Depp from 21 Jump Street. It's like not gonna, it's just not going to fit into my life. So if, if I still have that vest, the next time I see you, you gotta uh, just slap me. Uh, oh my gosh. Ask, give it, ask to, give it to Ted. Yeah, anyway, I will. Yeah, he doesn't he think, have sleeves on it. <laughs> that's true. He thinks sleeves are stupid. That's right. Uh, Ted's got something very nice coming his way. And so um, you, you've been so generous with your time, Steph. And, and um, I'll, I'll wrap with this. Um, what would you say uh, is the number one res- resource out there? It could be online. It could be a book. It could be anything. It could be a class. What would you say is that number one resource uh, that has helped you be successful? Um, honestly, that number one resource has been, um, I, I want to say it was my, my going to summer camp as a kid. So I think what that means is finding a group of people that you can connect with and create with on a regular basis and let that fulfill you in a way that getting the job can't. So that might mean starting a theater company or joining an acting studio. I've been very lucky in Los Angeles to have been a part of the John Rosenfeld studio. Um, that's mm-hmm. not the way. So that's not the name. It's John Rosenfeld studios. Um, and it is, I think one of the best creative communities, um, that I've been a part of. Um, John is a wonderful acting teacher. He's a wonderful actor and he created a place in LA where actors can come and not just work on their craft, but be challenged to create their own content and to um, use the community around them to help help each other, you know, mentally, emotionally, but also creatively. Um, and I think a resource like that, a place where you can get coaching on your acting, you can get coaching on the business side of acting. And we have a film festival where you can create your own work and have it seen by a ton of people on a huge movie screen. That is a resource that I don't know of in New York or other cities so if you aren't in LA and you can't be a part of JRS, start your own because mm-hmm. that's, that's, what's going to help. I love that. So if someone wanted to join the, uh, studio, what uh, should they do? What can they do? Is there a place to find this? On yeah, we have a, it's a yep, wonderful website. Go to johnrosenfeld.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a list of, all the different services, the different classes that we, there's an ongoing acting class, uh, scene study. There's, um, uh, audition technique, pilot prep, there's actor salon, which is its own program that is designed to help you through the business side of acting. Um, and there's also other kinds of workshops and things that come up. Um, there are over a dozen faculty members who are incredible working actors. Um, there's classes, day and evening, I think it's six days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, check them out online. And um, what's the name of the, of wonderful, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry so, to interject. What's, what's the name oh, of the, the festival? Website? Uh, the fest, it's called the JRS film festival and we do it every year 
um, for the students, it's created for the students. So it's works like any other film festival where they create shorts up to 10 minutes long, submit them and through a panel of outside, um, professionals, there's a jury basically who watches them and, um, selects them. And then we have a big screening. Um, and it's, it's incredible. And the work that's come out of it has gone on. One of the films that was in it two years ago has gone on to win, I think like five or six, like major festivals, a short film won some major festivals. They won um, Bentonville and uh, the writer directors were given um, a deal with Mar Vista to write a, to write and direct a feature. Wow. So it's been an incredible launching ground for people who wouldn't have thought to make a film otherwise. That's, that's awesome. And uh, tell everybody before you leave me and leave us mm-hmm. uh, where they can find you on social media and on the internet. Okay, you can find me on Instagram at blackski21. You can find me on Twitter at thestephblack. You can check out my website at thestephblack.com. And you can also find out more information about I Am A Theater Company at iamatheater.com. That's theater with an R-E. That is great. And so this whole time I think of... Was that right? I... (laughs) It sounded fine to me. I, you know, I always thought that it was Black Sky, but you were spelling Sky with I, so Black Sky Twenty One. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I should ask about that, or maybe I should. No, it's, it's literally <laughs> we got internet the day my dad picked me up from ski school, and he's like, you have to create a name, and I was like, Black Ski Twenty One. I think it was Black Ski, and then when I went to college, I had to add a number for my uh, email there. So that's what it is. It's not that creative. That's <laughs> pretty good story either way. That's good. <laughs> so That's good stupid. stuff. So yeah. guys, it's not Black Sky 21. It's Black Ski 21. And be <laughs> yeah. careful on the internet because there is a Stephanie Black that's a singer in Hamburg, Germany, who I think owns StephanieBlack.com. Uh, yeah, okay. there's also a porn star somewhere out there that oh, has no. my name as well. Oh, yeah. No. But um, usually the German pop star comes up first. Mm-hmm. The German pop star. So that's not who you're looking for. You're looking for... Uh, the wonderful fiery redhead Stephanie, uh, <laughs> uh, that is our good friend. And uh, Steph, you're so generous to do this. Thank you again. I I, I can't thank you enough. And um, the next time in, I'm in LA, I would absolutely love to do Alcove again. Yes, yes, eat some French fries and 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 tell everyone to come see Wild Man when it comes out. Absolutely. Everybody, everybody needs to do that. Um, there will be some <laughs> updates on that for sure. And uh, I cannot wait for that uh, to roll out. So that's going to be so exciting. Me too. Yep. Awesome. All right, Steph. Have a great night. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. All right. Be good. Okay. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on show me how to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, 
be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.